This week's episode is brought to you by Viewfinder Coffee Roasters. VCR is a specialty coffee roastery out of Dallas, Texas, that focuses on responsibly sourcing and sustainably roasting fantastic coffees from all around the globe. They take a scientific approach to their craft, ensuring consistent and delicious results every time. Right now, they have unique coffees from Guatemala, Colombia, Brazil, and Ethiopia. You can subscribe to a coffee you love, or they have a Roaster's Choice subscription, so you can rotate through all of their options. With new coffees each and every season, you will always have access to try fresh and interesting brews. Make sure to check them out on Instagram and Facebook at Viewfinder Coffee, or on their website, viewfindercoffee.com. And for a limited time only, use the code from this show, 21WONDERS, that's 21WONDERS, for 12% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome. This is 21. Episode 9.2, the world's most expensive site. Welcome back to 21, everyone. Last week, we introduced the ninth wonder of the ancient world, King Solomon's Temple to Jehovah in Jerusalem. One of the most fabulous buildings in world history, and it more than earned that title. Built out of only the finest materials that the ancient Near East had to offer, what its actual net worth was, no one will know. What we do know is that it was some absurd amount. Last week, we read the account of the construction of the temple. But that's all we had time to do. Today, we're going to go into the details of the temple and its furnishings, and we'll see just how much valuable material was used in the construction of the temple. Not only that, we'll see how much treasure the temple actually held. I forgot to mention this last week, but I have some pictures of what some people think King Solomon's temple would have looked like up on the website. Honestly, we do not have any ideas. It was destroyed completely before any pictures of it could be drawn. We can guess based on the measurements that we read last week and some of the furnishings we'll read about today, but there's no way to know for sure. But I don't want to get ahead of us. To start this week, I want to go back and simplify something that I said last week. It wasn't until I posted last week's episode that I realized that I did not convert the cubits of measurement that were used in the construction of the temple to meters or feet, a standard of measurement we understand today. Cubits were the standard of measurement in the ancient Near East, and when I was reading the account of the construction of the temple, I didn't even think about converting the cubits to meters or feet. So... My bad, if you were confused by that, I will rectify that here. The Bible records that the temple was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. So that is about 27.5 meters long, or 90 feet, about 9 meters wide, or 30 feet, and about 14 meters, or 45 feet tall. If these numbers don't sound as impressive as any of the other wonders we've covered so far, that's because they're nowhere close to what we're used to here on this show. The Temple of Solomon is one of the smallest wonders on this list. 
and if it wasn't for the extreme amount of precious materials used in the construction of the building and all its furnishings, King Solomon's temple would certainly not make this list. But that is the beauty of the wonders of the ancient world. Some are human-sized, some are regular buildings, and some are enormous. But that doesn't make any of them more impressive than any other. And as impressive as King Solomon's temple was, with the gold, fine-cut stone, and prime lumber, it was the furnishings of the temple which brought it above and beyond anything in the ancient world. We will get to some other temples here on this show, and we have already looked at one or two. But their interiors were no match for King Solomon's temple. They might have it for size, but certainly not for decor. The Bible records what King Solomon had made for the interior of the Temple of the Lord in 2 Chronicles chapters 3 and 4. Now, unlike what we did in the previous episode, I will read a verse or two about a particular part of decor, discuss it briefly before moving on. This way, we won't get too buried in random information without any sort of understanding as to the purpose of each of the temple's furnishings. The first thing recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 3 is a curtain. 2 Chronicles 3.14 says, He, Solomon, made a curtain of blue, purple, and crimson yarn and fine linen, with cherubim worked into it. This curtain was hung above the doorway to the most holy place. The most holy place, or the holy of holies, was the small square room at the back of the temple and was where God's presence resided. It was also in this room where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. This room, the most holy of holies, could only be entered by the high priest once a year, and that was it. One man, on one day. No one else was allowed to even look into the room. Anyone who did was killed immediately, not by human hands, but by God himself for men were unworthy to look upon the glory of God. This thick curtain separated God and man. But despite its purpose, it would have still have been beautiful to look at. Blue, crimson, and purple were three of the rarest dyes in the ancient world. Purple, for instance, was made of harvesting snails from the sea floor, and was incredibly expensive. But again, only the best materials for the temple of the Lord. Second Chronicles 3 continues, For the front of the temple he made two pillars, which were 35 cubits long, each with a capital 5 cubits high. He made interwoven chains and put them on top of the pillars. He also made a hundred pomegranates and attached them to the chains. He erected the pillars in front of the temple, one to the south, and one to the north. Now while it doesn't mention it here, the Bible does mention in a few verses ahead that these pillars were made of bronze. These bronze pillars together were 16 meters or 52 feet high, so each one was probably half that height, about 26 feet. The interwoven chain and pomegranates were either bronze or gold themselves. These pillars which decorated the front of the temple most likely stood on either side of the doorway, but the Bible does not specify where exactly they stood. 
the entire chapter of 2 Chronicles 4 is dedicated to laying out the rest of the furnishings both inside the temple and out in its courtyard. Chapter 4 starts off by stating that he, again this is Solomon, made a bronze altar 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 10 cubits high. This altar was a little more than 9 meters or 30 feet long and wide, and 4 and a half meters or 15 feet tall. This altar was most likely out in the courtyard in front of the temple, and where most of the sacrifices were done. Animal sacrifices, drink offerings, incense offerings, grain offerings, and any and all the other sacrifices that the Israelites had to make were done on this altar. But one of the most interesting furnishings for the temple of the Lord that Solomon made was called the sea. 2 Chronicles 4 describes the sea as, He made the sea of cast metal, circular in shape, measuring ten cubits from rim to rim, and five cubits high. It took a line of thirty cubits to measure around it. Below the rim, figures of bulls encircled it, ten to a cubit. The bulls were cast in two rows in one piece with the sea. The sea stood on twelve bulls, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea rested on top of them, and their hindquarters were toward the center. It was a handbreadth in thickness, and its rim was like the rim of a cup, like a lily blossom, and it held 3,000 baths. This is by far one of the most unique things I have ever come across in my study of ancient history. Literally, a giant bowl sitting on bowls. The sea was made out of bronze, and it measured four and a half meters or 15 feet from rim to rim, and was a little more than two meters or seven and a half feet high. The circumference of the rim was 13 meters or 45 feet. Now, while we don't have an exact measurement for a hand breadth of thickness, that's still pretty thick. You spread out your hand and look at it from thumb tip to pinky tip, that's probably a good six to eight inches depending on your hand size. And for the whole sea to measure this thickness, that's a lot of bronze. The bowls themselves which held up the sea were bronze too. This had to have been a very sturdy structure as 3,000 baths is about 1,750 gallons. The sea held water and was most likely used to capture rainwater for the priests who worked there. The sea most likely stood out in the courtyard with the altar. If it was designed to catch rainwater, it wouldn't make much sense to keep it indoors. The water from the sea was not used for any sacrificial purposes, though. For those, Solomon made ten separate basins for washing and placed five on the south side and five on the north. These basins were also made of bronze and they were designed to be the cleaning stations for the tools used in the sacrifices. We'll get to those here in just a moment. The next item that the Bible records that was made for the temple were lampstands. He, Solomon, made ten gold lampstands according to the specifications for them and placed them in the temple, five on the south side and five on the north. 
Now these lampstands were not like lampstands that we see today. Modern lamps tend to be small and light, easily movable. But these lampstands were very different. They would have been big, for the bigger they were, the more light the fires could give to a room. God actually gave Moses specifications for lampstands in Exodus 25:31 through 40. God told Moses to make the lampstands, the snuffers for putting out the lamps, trays for catching dripping oil, and any other utensils were to be made out of pure gold. The lampstands themselves were very ornate, decorated with branches, leaves, blossoms, and flowers. And each lampstand held seven lamps. So the ten lampstands that Solomon made could hold 70 lamps. This was more than enough to light up the temple as the sun went down. The next thing described were tables and the tools of sacrifice. He, Solomon, made ten tables and placed them in the temple, five on the south side and five on the north. He also made a hundred gold sprinkling bowls. He also made shovels, meat forks, pots, and other items needed for the sacrifices. These tables and tools, except for the sprinkling bowls, were bronze as well. The sprinkling bowls were used to catch blood from a sacrifice, which the priests would then either sprinkle on the people or sprinkle on the altar, depending on the sacrifice. If you haven't noticed, though, bronze is a theme. The Bible tells us that all these things that Solomon made amounted to so much that the weight of bronze could not be calculated. This is the only time during the construction of the Temple of the Lord at Jerusalem where we do not have an exact figure given to us as far as the weight of the material. For that to occur, it must have been a lot of bronze. But Solomon wasn't done there. Once all this work was completed, he also made an altar of pure gold that went into the Most Holy of Holies. He also overlaid the doors to the Most Holy of Holies with pure gold, and then hung the magnificent curtain above the door. All of these furnishings that King Solomon made for the Temple of the Lord. I honestly struggle to imagine a time where there was so much gold, silver, and bronze going around that using these in the construction of a public building like this was actually possible. I can't think of any other ruler or empire throughout history, and I've studied a lot of them, where this could have been possible to this extent. And this doesn't even include the remaining things that King Solomon brought and placed in the temple. His father, King David, had set many treasures of gold and silver aside and dedicated them to the Lord. Solomon brought these to the temple and placed them inside once the construction was completed. Before the construction of the temple even began, King David asked the people to give something towards its construction. The king did not exclude himself from this act of generosity. In 1 Chronicles 29, King David himself lays out what he is giving towards the temple of the Lord. With all my resources I have provided for the temple of my God, gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, 
iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble, all of these in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God, over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple. 3,000 talents of gold and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the building, for the gold work and the silver work, and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? Now just like cubits, talents are not exactly a standard of measurement that we use today. But historians have done their best and determined that one talent is about 35 kilograms or 75 pounds. This means that King David left for the temple about 90,000 kilograms or almost 200,000 pounds of gold and 210,000 kilograms or 463,000 pounds of silver. Now knowing an exact dollar amount for these kinds of figures is impossible. This is an obscene amount of wealth, but I want to do my best to try and convert it so we can understand how much money this was. The best number that I could find states that one pound of gold today is worth about $17,987. If this number is correct, then in today's money, King Solomon donated almost $3.5 trillion worth of gold. That is absolutely outrageous. And that doesn't even include the amount of silver. Silver is worth substantially less than gold today, as about a pound is about $305.88. In today's money, David would have also donated about $142 million worth of silver. That's no small amount of money to stick your nose up at, but it's nowhere close to the $3.5 trillion in gold. Now, gold and silver were held in a little bit closer value back in the ancient times than they do today. But still, this is an obscene amount of money. And honestly, the more we study the treasures of the Temple of Jehovah, it makes perfect sense why it has captured the attention of treasure hunters, kings, emperors, popes, movie directors, etc. for centuries. This amount of wealth in one place is perhaps the greatest concentration of treasure in history. With all of the treasures, the furnishings, and the tools made and placed in the temple, the only thing that remained was bringing God's presence into the temple. And to do that, Israel had to bring the Ark of the Covenant and place it in the Holy of Holies. King Solomon brought it from where it had been stationed during the construction and placed it inside the temple. The Israelites celebrated this event with feasts and sacrifices to God. The Ark of the Covenant housed the Ten Commandments that God himself had given to Moses. Once the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the temple, the Bible tells us that the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. 
The temple to Jehovah was finally complete. Everything was done to the highest of standard of quality and cost. Literally no cost was spared. And the temple to Jehovah at Jerusalem could have stood for centuries as a beacon to the Lord God. All the Israelites had to do was remain faithful to the Lord and not follow after the false gods of the peoples around them. But sadly, history would repeat itself. Almost immediately after King Solomon's death, Israel split into two kingdoms, one in the north and one in the south. When King Solomon died, his son Rehoboam was placed on the throne. Now the Israelites had just worked crazy hard for a long time under Solomon to build the temple, and were hoping for a respite under the new king. Instead of giving the people this rest, and lacking any sort of his father's wisdom, Rehoboam told the people no, and that he was going to work them even harder than his father had done. The ten northern tribes decided that they did not want to take part in that, and rebelled against Rehoboam. They formed their own separate kingdom, called it Israel, while the two southern tribes were a new kingdom that they called Judah. Now I will not go down the easy rabbit trails that I could when talking about the history of the Israelite nation. There's a lot of information in the Old Testament, and that's actually a pretty good idea for another podcast. One covering the Old Testament and including the Persians, Babylonians, Assyrians, Egyptians, and Hittites. That would be a fascinating project. But that's not our focus here on this show. While we will have to touch on all of these nations, both this week and next, we will do our best to remain focused on the history of the Temple of the Lord. Needless to say, after this split, we don't have to go much further in time before we reach our first moments of peril. After the split of Israel and Judah, needless to say, not all the kings of the respective kingdoms followed God the way David and Solomon had done. None of the kings of Israel and only a few of the kings of Judah remained faithful to the Lord. The rest strayed from God and worshipped the false gods and idols of the peoples around them. God had specifically told them not to do this in the Ten Commandments, like literally the first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And as punishment, he sent the enemies of Israel and Judah, including each other, to attack Due to this walking away from the Lord, the worship of him that took place at the temple subsided greatly, if not just stopped completely for certain periods of time. The temple was no longer a sacred place of worship. Not anymore. Now, it was just a building that housed a lot of material wealth. And even though the wealth was set apart for the Lord, future kings of Judah saw this wealth as an easy source of cash. By our best guess, historians have estimated that King Solomon finished the temple to Jehovah around 957 BC. And about 250 years after the temple was completed, an army came knocking. It was during the reign of King Hezekiah, who reigned in Jerusalem from the mid-700s to the early to mid-600s BC. These dates are a little bit disputed, due to some discrepancies in the Assyrian records of their kings. 
But fresh off the conquest of the kingdom of Israel, Assyria attempted to do the same with Judah. 2 Kings 18 describes the encounter between King Hezekiah of Judah, who was one of the few of the Judean kings who followed after God, and the army of the Assyrians who came knocking on his door. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So King Hezekiah of Judah sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. I have done wrong. Withdraw from me, and I will pay whatever you demand of me. The king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. At this time, Hezekiah, king of Judah, stripped off the gold which he had covered the doors and the doorposts of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. Now this might seem like a contradiction of sorts. King Hezekiah was a godly man, yet he took treasures from the temple of the Lord and gave them to a foreign army. And while yes, both of these are true, that doesn't mean he didn't value the treasures of the Lord. It's highly possible that the wealth of the temple was just about the only wealth left in the city at this point. And with an army camped outside, King Hezekiah did what was necessary to save his people. I imagine it would have pained Hezekiah greatly to give the order to strip the gold off the temple, but he gave the order nonetheless. Now sadly I'm going to have to put a stop there on our discussion of the history of the temple for this week. We have only scratched the surface, and we will definitely pick this up next week, but the next few accounts of the temple are a bit longer and involve more peoples and nations, and I want to give each one of them their due. So come back next week as the history of the temple to Jehovah at Jerusalem will only get deeper, darker, and more twisted in the fabric of history. Oh,